Thank you, Karen, for leading us in prayer. So it's Palm Sunday today, and we were able to engage in, uh, you know, one of the traditions of the church, one of the traditions we have here of the parade of the palms and waving the palms, cheering the arrival of Jesus. I mean, like, who doesn't like a parade? Like, Americans like good parades. We, we like good parades for St. Patrick's Day. We like good parades for Thanksgiving Day. We like good parades on Memorial Day. And we love parades every year the Cubs win the World Series. Every year they do it. We have a big parade for them. And I mean, I particularly like St. Patrick's Day parades if I can participate because people throw candy. Does it get any better than that, you know? Just pick up candy along the way. I guess it's for kids, but I just consider myself a big kid. So we wave these palms and we celebrate the coming and uh, people sing songs and they march and they celebrate and they wave banners and... Uh, you know, so it was that day that Jesus arrived. There was a lot of pent-up expectation. It's important for us to realize kind of the historical context here and that the people of Israel for 400 or more years had waited for this long-promised Messiah. And periodically, some great rabbi and teacher would come along or a prophet and they would think, oh man, maybe this is the Messiah, maybe this is the Messiah. And then it never came into fruition. They were always under oppressive governments, this time under the oppressive government of Rome. And, um, and, and now Jesus had come along, three years of ministry. And his reputation had preceded him. Great authoritative teaching, miracles that he had performed, wonderful things he had done, interactions with um, the authority. This is going to be the Messiah. And the Messiah was the person who would come and uh, overthrow that Roman government, return Israel to its proper place of prominence in the world, and set Israel free. And so when Jesus came that day into Jerusalem, the people were really anticipating his arrival, and so they took palms. They, you know, they were great. They were available. They were readily there. They could pick them up off the ground. They could take them off the trees, whatever they had to have. You know, for those of us who are from Dutch heritage, they were free. That's a big deal. And so Jesus came in and they waved these palms and everybody celebrated his coming. And, you know, it just sounds like a great big party. And it probably was. And they were just palms, right? I mean, palms are kind of innocuous. What do palms really mean? Except they give you something to wave. Unless you understood the history of the people of Israel and the importance of palms in that history. We read through verse 9 of Matthew chapter 21, but verse 10 says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? So the first realization that we need to have is that everybody in town was cheering Jesus' arrival because not everybody in town even knew who he was. So these were some people who were followers of Jesus, some people who anticipated his arrival, some people who had heard about his ministry, but the rest of the people in town had no clue who he was. Who, who is this? Pastor and author John Ortberg took that question and wrote an entire book entitled Who Is This Man? We used it as a foundation for some sermons that we preached here a few years ago. And he kind of distills the, the sense of history in one of the chapters in that book around this Palm Sunday. And the people of Israel were a people who had been 
an occupied territory for a long time, and when conquerors would come in, uh, they would take over everything, including the temple. They would bar people from worshiping in the temple, which was, you know, like taking a lifeline away from the Israelites. That was of central importance to them. That was a place where God dwelt. They needed to get to the temple. If you read back in relatively modern history, when the Soviet Union was run by the communists, you know, they closed the churches. And all these great, big, gothic, wonderful, architectural-styled churches were empty because no one was allowed to go. Periodically, in the long history of Israel, though, there would be someone who was ruling who would allow them a little bit of freedom. Under the Maccabees, they had the freedom to reclaim the temple and to go to worship. And so they rededicated the temple, and they rededicated the temple, and to celebrate, guess what they did? They waved palms. And as a, a symbol, on a couple other of occasions where an uprising by the Israelites was anticipated, they even printed coins. And on those coins, guess what they printed? Palms. And so palms became a symbol of more than just a celebration, more than just something that was available, more than just something they could pick up off the ground or cut off a tree. It became the symbol of a revolution. And so when Jesus came to town that day and people raised palms, this question, who is this, had a lot of different meanings for people. For some, it was just a curiosity. Who is this guy? Everybody's cheering as he comes in. For others, who is this who is threatening our freedom? Who is this that they're cheering who might lead a revolt? Who is this person that is entering our town and should we worry about him? Israelites were waving this flag. You know, it's a little bit like flying the W after a Cubs victory or, um, you know, wearing that American flag pin on your lapel. It's a symbol of something much bigger than what it is in and of itself. In writing about Palm Sunday, Ortberg writes in his book, Waving a palm in front of a Roman was like waving a red flag in front of a bull. It was a declaration of war. The triumphal entry was a military statement. John's gospel indicates this by the shouts of the crowd. They began shouting from Psalm, or quoting from Psalm 118, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. Hosanna, meaning, Lord, save us from these Roman oppressors. Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you go back to Psalm 118, the next line is, From the house of the Lord we bless you. But that isn't what the crowds say, according to John. What they say is, Blessed be the King of Israel. In other words, blessed is the one who is going to overthrow Pilate and Herod and Caesar. And so what we celebrate as a, as a fun, innocent, triumphal entry was anything but that. The palms had spoken. This was not some innocent you know, rabbi showing up from the hick town of Nazareth in the north who was kind of popular... This was the beginning of a revolution. Roman authorities and religious leaders alike saw this as a threat to their power and their control. This man, 
whoever he was, was dangerous. But the people cheered his arrival. Because in their hearts and minds, finally, finally, God is sending the Messiah. A new kingdom has come. And that's the Jesus we love, right? The triumphant Jesus. The victorious and conquering Jesus. We love the Jesus who heals, the Jesus who transforms, the Jesus who is full of comfort and compassion and understanding. We wave palms profusely in our own hearts for that Jesus. We cheer his entry into our lives. And we wave these palms, you know, with, con- with our conversations. Listen to what we say. If someone receives a medical diagnosis that is threatening to their life, and through prayer and medical treatment, they are healed, we wave our palms and we say, God is good. Or if someone is unemployed for a long period of time and then enters into a financial crisis, but through prayer and the help of a community, re-engages and employment and his situation is turned around. We say, God is good. Praise the Lord. Or if we simply have you know, a good time with extended family, if, if we survive another family reunion, or if maybe we just get together as a family on a Sunday afternoon and everything goes well, we might come away saying, wow, we are so blessed. And all that is true. It's all true. But are you familiar with this tradition in some churches um, where uh, the leader will say, God is good, and the congregation will respond all the time, right? And then the leader says, and all the time, God is good. I mean, how would that work here? God is good. And all the time. All the time. God isn't just good when things go well for us and we like what happens. God is good all the time. If there is a medical diagnosis and someone's health goes downhill and eventually dies, we're in the middle of grief and mourning. But God is still good in that situation. And if we stay unemployed and our financial state, you know, status doesn't change or improve, God is still good. And even if our family doesn't get along all the time, or ever, (laughs) we're still blessed. Because God is good all the time. But we tend to focus on the victories and triumphant nature of Jesus. This is exactly what happened to the disciples. They cheered as Jesus entered Jerusalem that day because they were hopeful that he was going to establish a new kingdom. They waved palms in anticipation of the defeat of the Romans. Jesus was going to do something radical, and he was going to be victorious. God is good, they were saying. At every opportunity that was presented, Jesus tried to correct the perception and the expectations of his followers. They might not have been paying very close attention when he talked about the kingdom of God. He would say the kingdom of God is like, and then it seems like they shut down. 
I mean, Jesus never said, you know, the kingdom of God is like when someone comes in and leads a revolution and we're restored to power. He never said that. He never said that the kingdom of God is like um, all of those who believe in Jesus having all the money they want or need and become rich. He never said that. He never said the kingdom of God is like when God's people reign and rule and have power and all of those who don't believe in Jesus don't have any power. He said, he said things like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God comes about when the people of God have faith that is only the size of the smallest thing you could imagine, a, a barely visible thing, like a mustard seed, and it grows. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Or we might have gotten a hint to what the kingdom of God is like when, um, when we saw that Jesus hung out with prostitutes and thieves instead of at a clergy convention. Or we might have gotten a hint of what the kingdom of God was like when Jesus would go to a place where they exiled people who were mentally ill so that they would be safe from them. And he would be the only one who would go. We might have got a hint of what the kingdom of God was like when Jesus would engage with leopards and no one else would touch them. I mean, Jesus was a winner. But he taught and he often lived a life that said that to be a winner, you really have to lose. To be successful, you have to serve other people. To be a part of my kingdom, you have to get out into the world and befriend those who aren't like you. In fact, you have to probably be friends with people who you don't want anything to do with. And the more that became clear during that week of his parade entry and cheering, the more that became clear about what was really going to happen to him, if you pay close attention to the events of Holy Week, the crowds get smaller and smaller and smaller as he lives out what the real kingdom is all about. And all that is left are just a few loyalists who sit at the foot of the cross and weep. I mean, we find it easy to cheer and wave palms for the Jesus who is our Savior, the one who took our deserved punishment on the cross, the one who paid the debt for our disobedience, the one who died so that we could live, the one who guaranteed us eternal life. I mean, who wouldn't cheer for that? We all should be cheering for Jesus who is our Savior. But, but Jesus is more than just a Savior. He's our Lord and Savior. And Lord isn't nearly as popular as Savior. Because deliverance and benefits are much more tangible signs of what we really want in life than the obedience that comes with Jesus being Lord he came to establish a kingdom, but, but many refer to it as an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom where to get to the top, you have to go to the bottom. And we say, you know, that doesn't work in our culture. Oh, really? If you read one of the best-selling um, business books of all time, written by Jim Collins, that takes companies from good to great, on his section on leaders, 
He says that the best leaders in business in America are leaders who are humble and not arrogant. Who are willing to go to the bottom and not always pound their chest about how they should be at the top. The kingdom of God is a kingdom where it's better to give than to receive. But in giving you do receive, which is maybe why some of the wealthiest people in the world have decided to give away 90% of their income. It's a kingdom where your value is not determined by the balance of your checkbook or the neighborhood where you live or the car that you drive or the salary that you earn, but by the way you pour your heart and soul into the lives of other men and women. It's a kingdom where you need to die to be able to live, which is not just an eternal concept. I mean, we've all got a little bit of dying to do. It may mean that we have to die to some of our own personal goals to better serve our families. It may mean that we have to kill some of our own personal ambitions that we had for our children so that our kids can become who they're meant to be and fulfill their dreams for their lives and not ours. It may mean that we have to die to try to please a culture because God has told us that something else is much more important. It may mean that, that we have to live into priorities that other people would see as just a bit odd. You see, Jesus' kingdom is different. And some would say that if we're fitting into our culture, then we're really not following Jesus because Jesus is countercultural. And that's hard to cheer for. The disciples are given some difficult lessons in that regard. You know, Matthew tells us that one day an ambitious parent came to Jesus and said, you know, um, you know two, my two sons are probably your best followers. James and John, they are wonderful disciples. In fact, they're so great, when you actually do establish your kingdom in Jerusalem and Israel is as powerful as as they're meant to be, restored to where David and Solomon once had them. When you've got that kingdom going, Jesus, and you're at the top of it, could you please put my son, James and John, one at the right hand and one at the left? And Jesus' reply was, well, you don't really know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, James and John, can you drink the cup that I'm going to get? Drink? We can, they answered not really understanding what that cup was. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Little did the mother know that sitting at Jesus' right hand and left hand might mean dying on a cross. There's a cost to discipleship, Jesus was saying. And that's hard to cheer for. Jesus had a conversation one day with a wealthy young man about inheriting eternal life. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know, follow the commandments, live according to the law. Oh man, I have done all of that. I have checked every box. I am the best at living into God's commandments. Perfect, Jesus said. 
that's great. I'm so proud of you. Now go and sell everything and follow me. And the man hung his head because he wasn't willing to give away everything just to follow Jesus. That's just hard to cheer for. Waving palms is a symbol for a revolution, for a transfer of power, for a new ruler in the kingdom. And our lives are filled with all sorts of little kingdoms. We have our professional kingdom and our family kingdom and our our image kingdom and our material kingdom and our financial kingdom and our church kingdom and our relational kingdom. We've got all these little kingdoms in our lives. And when we wave palms on Sunday morning, do we realize that we are saying, you know, Jesus, I want you to take over every single one of my kingdoms. Whatever one of those kingdoms I'm keeping for myself right now, I want you to take it over. I want you to create a revolution in my life. And I'm not going to hang on to my kingdom any longer. Hosanna, Lord, save us from ourselves. I mean, who knew that waving a palm could be so dangerous, so threatening, so so life-changing? Today marks our entrance into Holy Week. It's a week that begins with a parade and lots of cheering and ends with a crucifixion. I mean, it's easy to wave our palms for the triumphant Jesus, but not unlike the disciples who were there that week, we kind of fade when the demands get too tough on us. When Jesus talks about the sacrifices we have to make or the changes that have to occur. When he attacks our self-centered nature but eventually puts them on the cross. And so when we remember those things there's a sense of guilt that kind of wells up within us and maybe even a little bit of shame. And then it's important to remember that when Jesus was on that cross and he was being tortured and mocked, you know, we were there. There, There's this old spiritual song that you're familiar with, you know, were were you there when they crucified our Lord? Were you there? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Because God's not confined by time. He he was nailed to the cross by Roman soldiers, but we were there. We were pounding the nails into his body. We're responsible for his death on the cross. And yet while we're pounding nails in Jesus on the cross, he looks down and he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They don't really understand. So while we may have a sense of guilt or shame, Jesus is saying, you know what, I love you anyway. 
and I'm dying for you because of that very thing. And so, live in my love. Remember that I love you in spite of yourself. And wave your palms and invite me in to take over your little kingdoms. And you will know life in a way that you never have known it before. Let us pray. God in heaven, we are humbled by your love and your mercy and your grace. You know, this is a holy week. It's set apart. It's unique. It's different than all other weeks. It's a tough week. We should celebrate your entrance into Jerusalem because we know that you're going to conquer and be the ruler of a kingdom that, that those people who were there today had no idea was going to take place. And we have the benefit of knowing what your kingdom is really all about. And you did come to save us. And for that we wave our palms and we give you thanks. And so as we move through the events of this week, O oh Lord, give us a sense of love and grace and mercy that we've never experienced before. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, every week as we worship together, we get to um, wave our palms and celebrate the love of Jesus Christ uh, by giving him a portion of what he's given to us. That's exactly what the people were doing that way. He was coming to give them something. They were celebrating his arrival with their palms. And so we're going to wave our palms now through our tithes and our offerings as we continue to worship together. Mm -hmm.